0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, um, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Luke, the 10th chapter, and we're going to look at the 21st verse. Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. Truly, Jesus was rightly described as a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We often see him sad, sighing, sorrowing in the scriptures. We see him weep, we see him groan in his spirit. We see him sighing and looking up into heaven, and that word sighing means almost being angry. At the tomb of Lazarus, he was groaning, he was sad, but in sad in an angry way when faced with death, his great enemy. But here, in this verse, we see Jesus rejoicing. We see him rejoicing. As I said earlier, we're we're approaching Thanksgiving, uh, a very holy holiday, I consider it, in America, where we give thanks for what the Lord blessed us as a nation to be. Uh, Those pilgrims knew the truths of God's word, and they thanked the Lord for that that time when the Lord got them through uh, a very difficult winter, a very difficult time where many died, but the Lord yet providentially preserved them and was with them. And as we approach Thanksgiving, we need to be thankful. In fact, uh, there's a place in the New Testament, one of the epistles where Paul says, give thanks always. Often we're, we're admonished, be ye thankful. Well, if we're going to be thankful, there's many things to be thankful for, but it occurred to me over the past few days, we really ought to examine what Jesus was thankful for and what he rejoiced in. And, and, and shouldn't that be the primary focus of our thanksgiving? So as we read this verse, let's look at this idea of Jesus rejoicing and giving thanks. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus here is rejoicing the word rejoice there literally means to leap with joy. Now, he's rejoicing in spirit, and, and, and that, that, as I said, that root word there means to leap with joy. He's in his spirit. He is leaping for joy. And it's important to see what made Jesus rejoice. So let's look at that for just a few minutes here this morning. First of all, we see that he was thankful and rejoicing that God was his father. He said, I thank thee, O Father. In verses 21 and 22, five times he calls God his Father. Over in the book of Luke, or earlier in the book of Luke, in the first chapter, we, we read about how that Jesus' conception and birth occurred. In, in chapter 1 and verse 34, Mary, after having been told by the angel that she was going to bear the Son of God, she, she asked a question that I would ask. It's a very natural question. How shall this be? And by the way, um, I know that most, uh, most modern theologians and Bible scholars try to turn Mary into just a young woman. They try to translate that word virgin into just a young woman, a young girl. You know, back over in Isaiah, he says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign... A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, now let me ask you a question. What kind of sign would it be if it was just a young woman that conceived? and bore? A son? That happens all the time, right? <laughs> that's, that's the natural course of things, but it is not the natural course of things for a virgin to conceive and to have a son. And I remember Brother Sonny Powell saying that they're trying to change that. They're trying to make us forget about the miracle of his birth, but he, the Lord won't have it. He, even here, he made it clear. She asked the question, you know, you, and okay, you may want to eliminate the term virgin. You may want to change it to something else, but she asked the question, how shall this be seeing I know not a man? She affirms her status as a pure young woman there, and see, that, that is a sign. That is a very great sign to us. If, if that happens, that's a big deal. The other is just the natural course of things. But she asked the question. She said, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost. Shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You know why it'll be called the Son of God? Because He was the Son of God. (laughs) He always was from eternity past. His birth was a miracle birth. He calls God His Father. Why? Because God really was His Father. Now, I understand that Jesus Christ the Son, and God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit, are co-equal, and they are one and the same. They manifest in three different uh, uh, entities there, if you will, three different ver- uh, ways that they manifest themselves, but yet they are one God. You say, preacher, how, how, what is, explain that to me. I can't, <laughs> okay, but I can believe it because the Bible tells it, okay. I can't explain to you exactly how god exists as a triune person the three persons of the godhead and yet he's still one but i know it's true because the bible teaches us that it's true over in the book of first john and one of the reasons i love the old king james version of the bible here is because it doesn't leave anything out over in you know, most of the modern translations leave out chapter 5 and verse 7 but praise god we've got it here in this old kjv Uh, first john chapter 5 and verse 7 says there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one the strongest scripture we have in support of the fact that god is one god who manifests in three persons the trinity he calls god his father Because God is his Father. And yet he was a man. And yet he was a man. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to what Paul, I believe, who wrote, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Listen to what Paul says. There's a reason for him becoming flesh. Verse 16, he says, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. You know, it's important that our God is not just a spirit that appeared and gave us some good things and some good teachings to live by and then went back to heaven. It's important that our God is very man. It's important that he became a man. Now, again, that's one of those things that no, I don't care. If a preacher says he can explain it, he's lying to you or he's misinformed. I can't explain it to you I can't I can't draw the line between man and God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ but I've heard it put this way before I've heard it put in the in this in this statement he was so much God as if he were not man at all and he was so much man as if he were not God at all now how that works together God knows. I don't have to know, but I know this. He had to become a man. You know why he had to become a man? Go back up to verse 14 here in Hebrews 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject unto bondage. See, he couldn't come as a dog and die for a man. (laughs) He couldn't come as a bull and die for a man. He had to come as a man to die for a man. And as God, he could uh, could pay the sin debt, but he couldn't die. As man, he could die, but he couldn't pay the sin debt. But as God and man, he could both pay the sin debt and die for sins and save us. And he goes on. There's, There's some glorious truths here that we don't need to miss. About our God. You know, sometimes we think of God, and we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God in a minute. And that is a very important fact that we ought to fall back on in every area of our lives. But don't ever miss the point that God is not just a God who sits high in the heavens, He's a God who looks low upon the men of this world. He's a God who deigned to leave His throne and to come down here and to experience sin in a way the Godhead had never experienced sin. Do you know how much God hates sin? If you have any questions about how much God hates sin, take a look at the cross. Because I'll tell you, if my son were about to suffer for somebody else's sins, I would be very tempted, in fact I probably would, go to that cross and pull him down and take him home and bind up his wounds and say, forget about those folks. But God loved his people so much that he was not willing to leave them in their sins. He, was, he, was purpose, he had purposed to send his son to die for their sins. And if God ever were going to wink at sin, wouldn't it have been on the cross where his precious son was dying? You know, I, I don't want to get too far afield this morning, but understand something about the cross. I know the, the physical suffering was terrible. It was more I, I don't believe there's a man alive, there's a man who's ever lived who could have experienced what Jesus Christ experienced and lived. I'd have died, my heart would have burst asunder a long time before they started nailing the nails into my hands. I I, I he had been scourged with with that scourge of cords. He had been he had he'd had that that crown of those awful thorns, and not just little stickers either. I've seen the thorns. They're that they're long and they're tough and they'll They'll hurt. He'd he'd seen those, that crown, he'd had that crown of thorns mashed down upon his brow and the blood pouring down. And by the time we're told in Isaiah, uh, by the time he got to the cross and he was up there, his visage, his face, the way he looked was so marred, you couldn't even tell he was a man. He was so marred more than any man. And that was terrible, horrible suffering. But I tell you, I believe the greatest suffering he experienced on the cross was not that physical suffering, but it was that spiritual separation from his father. You think about this. Think about the the fellowship you have with your children or your family or your friends if if you don't have any family still. You know, just think about the closeness you have with one of your children. And the idea of that fellowship being broken and 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 not just broken in a temp, in in some kind of minor mild way. See, Jesus became that which God hates. God hates sin so much. We're told in Habakkuk that he is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon sin. And when Jesus was hanging there suspended between heaven and earth, you remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer to that is because he had become sin for us and God had turned his back upon his son. I don't understand all the details of all the separation that occurred there and nobody does for sure, but I know this. The God who had experienced perfect harmony and fellowship from eternity past there on Mount Calvary, experienced whatever time period it was, but it doesn't matter to God because time means nothing to God. A day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And whatever time period it was, he experienced separation from, him, from his very self. Oh, what pain that must have been. What, what suffering that must have been. And because he was God, he could do that for us. Because God was his Father. See, he called God his Father While he walked on this earth. Many places. You can can look them up. If you got a concordance. He called God his father. While he was on the cross. He cried out to him. And by the way. I want to point out something. That I've been saying. That's really just a little bit wrong. I've been saying God was his father. I want to affirm to you. On the authority of the word of God. God is his father. Because he still lives. And and, and dwells together now with his father seated on, his, on the right hand of the Father on high today. Over in, uh, over in John, the 8th chapter, in the 57th verse, uh, let's go back in verse 56. He's talking to these Jews that didn't believe in him there, and he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad and of course they couldn't understand they said you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen abraham in verse 58 jesus said unto them verily verily i say unto you before abraham was i am beloved jesus christ is not just a man he's not just a spirit inhabiting a man's body he is the great i am god is his Father Jesus was thankful for that. Are we thankful? Are we thankful this morning that God is our Father? Say, so how can it be that God is our Father? But yet he tells us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. He tells um, he, he Paul again, I believe, writing over in the book of Hebrews, tells us this in Hebrews chapter two. Backing up a little bit in verses eleven through thirteen, he says, "Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. So God and Jesus Christ are all of one." And he says, uh, uh, and, and his children are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Why? Because they're sanctified. They're sanctified by what he did on the cross, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And I love this one. Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Isn't that glorious? Behold I and the children which God hath given me. Do you know why God is your father? Well, we're going to see it here in just a minute, but it's because God loved you as a son or as a daughter. That's why. It's not because of something you did. It's not because of some prayer you prayed. It's not because of some act of righteousness you performed. Because all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's because God loved us before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that's the next thing that Jesus is thankful for. He says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Here he says, I am thankful that you are sovereign. He rejoiced in the fact of God's sovereignty. Notice, as I said earlier, he rejoiced in spirit. He leaped for joy. <laughs> he, he, he leaped and rejoiced with great exultation. This thrilled the spirit of Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus is saying, I'm rejoicing that my Father is all-powerful. I'm rejoicing. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who holds all things by the word of His power. He is, he is the very God of this universe. And you see, he's, because God is sovereign... All obstacles of life can be overcome. And by the way, because God is sovereign, Jesus Christ is also sovereign. I, I know that was part of his exaltation here. He was, he, I thank you, Lord, that you're the, the Lord of heaven and earth. And because you're the Lord of heaven and earth, that means I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. See, our father, by the way, this same father is our father. He is bigger than all the other fathers that you can think of out there. He is, a, you know, my daddy is bigger than your daddy. My daddy is greater than your daddy. There's nothing that my father can't do. He, you know what? There was a great king named Nebuchadnezzar. I like old Nebuchadnezzar. I, I identify with him quite a bit. I don't know if he was a child of God or not. I kind of believe he was because he, he had some things to say about God that were clearly inspired of God. Now, I know, I know God can make the wrath of man to praise him, but I kind of sense some repentance in old Nebuchadnezzar there, some fruits of the Spirit. But be that as it may, whether you believe he was or whether you believe he wasn't, there was a time when Nebuchadnezzar got too big for his britches. <clears throat> he, and, he, and, you know, the, the crazy thing about Nebuchadnezzar is he'd been told this was going to happen. He had a dream about it and god said there's going to be a time when you're going to get too proud and i'm going to bring you down (laughs) and daniel told him what the dream was and he said king let me just let me just beg you to change your ways so that the lord won't do this and I'm, i'm paraphrasing of course you can go read it over in the fourth chapter of the book of daniel sometime but of course being a man as we said about that human nature his human nature popped right back up where it was He's walking in the palaces there one day in Babylon. He said, "Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my hands. And he goes to being prideful about all that he'd done in life. And and let let me just say that's a lesson for us, child of God. There is nothing God hates worse than pride. When you lift yourself up against the God of heaven, you can expect to be smacked down, okay? Now, I know there are those that seemingly get away with it, but uh, Psalm 73 deals with that situation, that there are those who are wicked and reprobates who, who seem to be blessed in this world, who, who have the good things of this world, but all oh, their feet are up on very slippery places, the psalmist writes. But here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he's lifted up with pride, and God smites him. And he's turned out into the pasture, and he becomes like a wild beast, eating grass, and his, his, he grew, like it were, fur upon his body. And, he, and this is the great king of Babylon. This is the greatest king of that day. His word was law. He had the power of life and death. If he decided he didn't like you, he could just have you executed with no repercussions. He had all the power that a man could have in that day. But guess what happened? God showed him that he didn't have all power after all. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, I believe it is, he said of God, he said, uh, he he has his way among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the land, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? This old pagan king made one of the greatest statements about the sovereignty of God that's ever been made. He, is the, he has all power in heaven and earth. <laughs> and he has, the, he has his way among the, the armies of heaven, which most people do believe. But I'm sorry to say, even out in the denominational world today, among Christian denominations, many don't believe he's sovereign here in this life but he has his way not only in the armies of heaven but among the inhabitants of the land by the way we're not talking about some kind of absolute predestination remember that the doctrine of predestination only applies to people but God is a providential God and God's providence and in his providence he always gets his way things don't always go according to his will of what he would have us to do in other words it's not his will for us to go out and get drunk and drive the wrong way on the highway and kill somebody that's not God's will but God providentially takes care of us in in other in in ways to well. ultimately his way is is done among the inhabitants of the land isn't that that glorious you know I can't even fathom how that works I can't even fathom how God does that the providence of God is so much greater than me that I can't do anything but just trust him that's all I can do but you know what that's all I need to do (laughs) That's all I need to do because why? you know why? My daddy's bigger than your daddy. <laughs> my daddy, my father is the greatest of all because he has his way among the inhabitants of the land and the armies of heaven and none can stay his hand. You can't stop him or say unto him, what do I say? You can't even question him. We do it all the time, but in truth, we can't do that. We have no right to question God. He rejoiced, Jesus rejoiced in the fact of his sovereignty and by the way the end of that verse tells us something important about the sovereignty of God he said for so it seemed good in thy sight the sovereignty of God is a good thing it's a good thing and and not only did Jesus rejoice in the fact of God being sovereign he rejoiced in the application of his sovereignty he prayed sovereignty Lord of heaven and earth he agreed with Daniel, he agreed with Malachi who said, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He agreed with that, he prayed that, but he also preached it. Beloved, if we believe it and we pray it, we ought to preach it. I know some people who believe in the sovereignty of God but won't preach the sovereignty of God. Did you know Jesus Christ's first sermon was about the sovereignty of God? Look with me back over to Luke, the fourth chapter, in the 24th verse. As he begins to preach his first message there in Nazareth, he comes down to verse 34 or 24 and says, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own com- country. And this is in response to them saying, Wait a minute, who are you to be teaching us? Who are you to be? You're Joseph's son. Why are you sitting here trying to teach us? He said, No prophet is accepted in his own country. Now listen to this message he preached. Now up to this point, they've been listening to him. Up to this point... He talked to them about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him to preach the gospel to the poor and all these. He, he, he was reading out of the book of Isaiah and, uh, and he began to teach them and tell them that this was fulfilled. And they were listening up to this point, but now look what happens when he starts preaching about sovereignty. But I tell you of a truth many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. Unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus the prophet, and none of them was cleansed save Naaman the Syrian. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is preaching sovereignty to them. He's preaching the fact that not only is God sovereign, but the application of His sovereignty occurs in this life. In other words, there were a lot of widows that day in Israel. And according to most of the teachings of the world today, they said, well, God, He's got to go give all of them a chance. He's got to go take care of all of them. He's got to go to every single one and give them an equal shot at His mercy. But instead, what God did is He went to a widow that wasn't even part of Israel, a widow over in Sarepta, a city of Sidon. And, and there were lepers all over the nation of Israel. There were lepers everywhere in the day of Naaman the Syrians. But God didn't go to them and give them a shot and give them a chance and, and do them the same way he did Naaman. He went to Naaman, who was a Syrian. What's Jesus preaching here? He's preaching the application of the sovereignty of God, that God in his sovereignty uh, has purpose to do some things that, don't all, that men don't always agree with. And you know what they did to him? They didn't sit there and say, Boy, this is interesting. I, I'd like to hear this some more. They didn't say... Uh, yeah, I get that. God is so. No, it says they all in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They they were going to make sure this man didn't have a chance to live. They weren't going to just push him off the hill or make him jump. They were going to throw him down head first and make sure this man didn't live. They hated that teaching. Beloved, so often in the world, they hate the teaching of the sovereignty of God, especially in its application to our eternal salvation. But Jesus not only prayed sovereignty, He preached it. As I said, many like to preach sovereignty in general and talk about how great God is, but deny sovereignty in its application, particularly in eternal salvation. But here Jesus prayed and preached it. Notice what he said back over in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. know what he's teaching here he's teaching the sovereignty and the salvation of his people he's teaching the doctrine of election right here let's go back let's let's go back over to matthew chapter 11 this is the other place where jesus says i thank thee O father over in matthew chapter 11 very famous passage that's often used in in a misunderstood way in the world in matthew chapter 11 and verse 25 We read this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Now, I want you to notice the context of this statement, as opposed to the context of the one where he says this over in Luke. In this situation, If you go back earlier in chapter 11 of Matthew, you're going to read initially that John the Baptist has got questions about Jesus. John the Baptist, who was the greatest of those born of women, Jesus said, even he doubted, even he questioned him. And and then as he began to preach to the multitudes and he began to go through different places, uh, uh, different cities and talk about them again, back in verse 20 it says, "...he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not." and he goes on to pronounce woes upon them, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and he compares them to Tyre and Sidon and saying that if I had preached it to Tyre and Sidon, they would have listened. You don't listen. You're, this is, so he's preaching this. He's making this statement in the context of the rejection of the gospel message. These people had rejected it. Even John was doubting it. And Jesus said, I thank you, Lord, that you reveal it unto babes and not to the wise and prudent. Now back over in Luke, the 10th chapter, he's, he's, talking, he's making this statement in the context of the reception of the gospel. He had sent his disciples out to preach in chapter 10, and, and there were some powerful results of that. There were people that responded. In verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy, we're told, saying, Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They had a great Victory, if you will, in preaching the gospel over there. And and Jesus makes the same statement in the face of the reception of the gospel that he makes in the face of the rejection of the gospel. You know what that tells me? That God is sovereign in every case. God is sovereign in every case. Over in John, the first chapter, in about the 10th verse, he says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In verse 12, there were some that received him. He said, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We, we dealt with this, I think, last Sunday night a little bit. And, um, and we saw that those who receive Jesus are those who believe in, on Jesus. They're, they're, they're one and the same. But so many times the world gets it mixed up. And, and you hear this often. You've got to believe in him in order to be born again. You've got to receive him in order to be born again. You've got to accept Jesus in order to be born again. Which, by the way, the term accept Jesus never appears in the, God, in the, in the word of God anywhere in connection with eternal salvation. He talks about being made accepted in the beloved. He talks about those being accepted with him. But, it doesn't t- but anyway, be that as it may The world says you've got to do these things in order to be born again. But notice what it says here in verse 13. You see, verse 12 is a great verse, but so is verse 13. (laughs) As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. Now, I'm no English scholar, but I know that were is past tense. I know that were is not now. (laughs) Were is not is or will be. Were is already in the past, you see. So these that received him, these that believe on him, were born. That is, born again. Not talking about born naturally, talking about being born again, as Jesus will tell Nicodemus, you have to be. So let's see how they're born. Was it born by a prayer? Was it born by a preacher? Was it born by a Bible tract of some sort? Or was it born by something they did or by baptism or anything like that? No, which were born, not of blood, so they didn't inherit it. You're not a child of God because your mom and daddy was a child of God. Nor of the will of the flesh, that means you didn't work it up within yourself. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they're spiritually discerned. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Nor of the will of man. It's not because somebody else prayed for you. It's not because somebody else tried to get you there. It's not because somebody else gave you 10 steps or 5 steps or 12 steps to follow. So how is it that we're born? but of God, but of God. It goes all the way back to God every time. You see, Jesus rejoiced in this. He said, I'm so thankful that you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent. See, if, if now look, it doesn't mean he doesn't save anybody that's wise or anybody that's prudent in the sense of the intellectual ability. But it just means that those who see themselves as wise and prudent and capable of earning or attaining eternal salvation, they're not the ones that get it. (laughs) It's the ones that are babes. Think about a little baby. How much can a little baby do for himself? A little baby has to be taken care of. I don't care how old you are in one sense, in your natural self, you're just a baby. You're helpless. You're hopeless without someone to take care of you, without someone to do everything for you. What happens? What happens to that baby that's neglected? He dies. (laughs) And in fact, before the baby is born, he doesn't do anything to get born, does he? (laughs) When he's in the womb, he's not not sitting there calculating the time and saying, Okay, I think uh, think I'm going to be born on May 1st. I think that's when I'm going to decide to come. No. The baby is born apart from an any exercise of its will or any exercise of any action whatsoever. Oh, what a, what a comparison here. Which were born. Before they believed, they were born. Before they received, they were born. Now listen, believing and receiving is important. We ought to do that. We ought to, you know, I tell people I don't like to use the term accepting Jesus because people misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but if you want to use that term, I, I'll say to you that you ought to accept Him every day. You ought to receive Him every day. You ought to live like you're one of His children every day. But understand that the only way you can do that is because you were born. And it wasn't by blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And you know, Jesus rejoiced at this. Jesus rejoiced. He said, I... I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Now, one other thing as we bring this to a close that Jesus, I believe, was thankful for here. He said, Even for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus was thankful that God is good. Why did he rejoice? Because it seemed good in the sight of God did you know that every single thing that God does is good whether we understand it or not whether we agree with it or not in fact it's kind of the height of arrogancy to walk up to God and say well I didn't agree with what you did you know that's kind of not the way to approach God I'll just say Every single thing that God does is good. Every act that He performs is motivated by goodness. It is permeated by goodness. It results in goodness. Everything He does is good because God by nature is righteous. God by nature is good. He's called the righteous God in Psalm 7 and verse 9. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 7 The revelator writes, I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Everything he does is true and righteous. Listen, everything I do is not true and righteous. There's a lot of things I do, unfortunately, and I'm sorry to admit this, that are self-focused. They're done for my pleasure. They're done for my good, not for someone else's good. But God does everything right. You know, I love that question that Abraham asked him. Over in Genesis 18, he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see, God's not just theoretical goodness. He's practical goodness. He, he does right. Now, if we understand the nature of God, then we shouldn't have a problem with the doctrines of grace. Some think the doctrines of grace are bad. Some think they are harsh and discriminating and that sort of thing that in a negative way. But I want to say to you, beloved, that grace is the greatest of all the goodness of God. It's the greatest manifestation of God's goodness that there could be. People sometimes accuse us of being being exclusive. They say, well, what you preach is an exclusive doctrine. Beloved, it's the most inclusive doctrine there ever is. Without grace, there'd be no one in heaven. Without grace... There just be a and by the way, don't ever let anybody convince you that you're part of the chosen few. I know I've said that over and over, but I want to keep saying it. There by, we're told in the book of Revelation that there is a multitude that no man can number out of every kindred and nation and tongue and people. Beloved, there are people in the darkest reaches of Africa that are children of God. There are people uh, in the highest hills of Mount Everest that are children of God. Everywhere you go, God has a people and God has purpose to save his people people from their sins you know i that's one of the things people sometimes ask say what do you believe is primitive baptist well you know we could go into a long dissertation or go through our, our articles of faith but i can just boil it down to one statement in matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 as the angel was talking to Joseph there he said to Joseph he said fear not in verse 20 to take unto thee Mary thy wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost and then I love verse 21 for thou she shall bring forth a son thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins beloved if you ask us what we believe here at Zion Church we believe Jesus saved his people from his their sins there on the cross he finished the work when he cried out in John chapter 19 and Verse 30, which this book is leading up to. He said, It is finished. (laughs) Praise God, I believe it was finished. There's nothing left to do. But you know, the glory of that is that there's nothing we could do. See, that's the part we miss sometimes. People get upset sometimes about the doctrines of grace, they don't understand them if they get upset. I was talking to someone recently about coming to see the doctrines of grace. And he made the statement, as I've shared with you, he said, once you see total depravity, everything else just falls into place. Once you understand what a true sinner you are, it's not hard to accept the doctrines of grace. See, that's what Jesus is rejoicing in. He's rejoicing in the fact that there's no, <laughs> there's no proud Pharisee that's going to be walking the streets of gold saying, me and Jesus, we, we got here together. But praise God, there's going to be no destitute publican left out. Isn't that glorious? The one, you know. Sometimes I've I've said this as we bring this to a close. I've, I've said this, heard this before. That somebody says, "Well, you believe there's people out there that uh, that just want to go to heaven and love Jesus, but can't because they weren't chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world." Those people don't exist. Anyone you find seeking. And serving the Lord. We're told about Cornelius that in every nation. He that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Not will accept him but is accepted with him. Jesus rejoiced and was thankful that God was sovereign. That God was his father and the father of all of his people and that God is good. And beloved, in this week of Thanksgiving, we ought to be thankful for that too. You see the message of grace is good news to the sinner. Over in Acts the 15th chapter, they called a meeting over there of the apostles because there were some Jews that had converted to Christianity. And I'm sure they were children of God. I'm not questioning them whether they were or not, but they they misunderstood the teachings of Jesus, and they said, "It's not enough that you're just a believer. It's you got to also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. There's something you got to add to to what Jesus has done." You know, I know there's nobody out there teaching you have got to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in in a literal sense today. But anything you find in the world that adds to what Jesus has done on the cross. It's just the same situation as what they were facing in Acts chapter 15. Whether it's good works, whether it's praying a prayer, whether it's holding on, letting go, praying through, outrunning the devil, getting baptized, whatever you want to add to it, it's works. And it's legalism. And these Judaizing missionaries had come down there, and they said, you got to do these things in addition to what Jesus did for us. And old Peter stood up and he said to them, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. You know how you're saved this morning? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how that grace comes upon you? You don't have... You don't have a claim on it. You don't, have a, uh, you don't have a path to follow to get to it. It comes upon you by the sovereign act of God, the sovereign grace of God. Ought we not thank God for the same things Jesus thanked him for? Beloved, in this Thanksgiving week, I believe the greatest thing we have to be thankful for is the grace of God that bringeth salvation to every single one of his people.